Hello and welcome to the official podcast of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society. I am your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson, board certified veterinary anesthesiologist and proud gas passer. I am so glad you decided to spend your time with me today as we go through our anesthesia journey together. I'm very happy to say that this is our first and hopefully not our last episode on equine anesthesia. And if you don't anesthetize horses in your daily life, I beg of you, please do not hit that pause button and just hear me out for the next minute or so while I make my case for you to stay and listen. Now, if you have been listening to this podcast, then you may have heard it mentioned once or twice that this podcast has been in the making for a long time. So long, in fact, that the episode you're about to hear today was recorded almost four years ago, way before COVID-19 was in our daily lexicon. You see, back when this podcast was in its conception, it was extremely important to me that we discuss, let's say, controversial topics in veterinary anesthesia. And one area I felt that there was some let's call it strong opinions, was with the use of opioids in horses for peri-anesthetic pain management. You see, when I was an anesthesia resident almost a decade ago, it was very taboo at the institution I was training at to use full mu agonist opioids, such as morphine, methadone, or hydromorphone in horses at the same time that a horse underwent general anesthesia. The case was made to avoid using these drugs due to their loose association with post-anesthetic colic. We relied heavily on alpha-2 adrenergic agonists like xylazine and NSAIDs like banamine to control perioperative pain. However, as time went by, and I became a faculty anesthesiologist, I began to hear about other institutions regularly using full mu agonist opioids in horses, even for colic surgery. And there was one hospital not too far away with a brilliant anesthesiologist that was spending a lot of her time researching the use of opioids in horses. I became so intrigued to learn more about her research that on one spring day in 2019, I filled up my tiny Volkswagen with all my fancy new podcast equipment and made the eight-hour trip to Athens, Georgia to speak with her. So in this episode, you will be hearing from the brilliant Dr. Rachel Reed, boarded veterinary anesthesiologist and researcher at the University of Georgia, to answer questions about this challenging topic. What is the true risk of using full mu agonist opioids in horses, and can they be used safely and effectively to control perioperative pain in the species? And if you have no interest in horses as a species, I still hope you stay to learn a thing or two about opioids. Because this episode was recorded so long ago, I am also happy to announce that this is a two-part episode as our next episode will also feature our first returning guest, Dr. Rachel Reed, to give us an update in the world of opioid use in horses. In that episode, she will discuss some of the findings from a lot of the studies that she alludes to in this episode. So I really hope that you stick around for the first part of this two-part episode on opioid use in horses. My name is Rachel Reed, and I am an assistant professor of anesthesiology at the University of Georgia. So I currently am an employee of the large animal medicine department, but I anesthetize patients on both sides, the small and large animal sides of the hospital. Cool. Okay. So can you give us a little bit about your backgrounds? Sure. I'm from North Carolina originally, um, and I went to North Carolina State University for undergrad and vet school. I went into private practice for a while, for a couple years, and then after that, 
I decided to go back for a residency. And so then I went to the University of Tennessee for residency and I was there for three years and then came to the University of Georgia where I am now. Great. Fun fact. Yeah. Rachel and I studied for our boards exam together. And passed it together. We passed it together because <laughs> we're bosses. <laughs> totally. Today, what we want to focus on a little bit, because you just recently had a paper come out in veterinary anesthesia and analgesia about this topic, but we want to talk about use of opioids in horses. I think, unfortunately, kind of equine pain management seems to lack behind not only, obviously, human medicine, because we just, as a field, lag behind the medical fields in general, but also seems to just lag behind like dogs and cats. So why do you think that the field of equine pain management, why do you think that's not as popular for people to kind of study than other disciplines? Sure. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that. I'm kind of in general, in terms of just equine pain management studies, it's hard to a, get a lot of horses to be able to do those studies. So it's easier to manage, for example, a population of dogs than it is a population of horses. Um, so if you're lucky enough to have a population of horses, that's great. And then beyond that, it's hard to assess pain in horses. They're one of the more difficult species that we work with in terms of pain management studies because they can be quite stoic, whereas a dog or a cat might vocalize or act really uncomfortable. Horses may not do that sort of thing. They may just kind of stand in the corner of the stall and be pretty stoic about their pain. So it's hard to know sometimes how much pain horses are experiencing. And then horses have the problem that they want to die always by colicking. <laughs> and a lot of our drugs that provide analgesia, like opioids, for example, affect the GI tract negatively. So they cause a decrease in gastrointestinal motility, which can lead to colic, which could lead to death in horses if it's not caught early and appropriately managed. So even though we do have a lot of studies out there in regards to opioids in horses, a lot of people are still apprehensive about using them because of the adverse effects that they can carry with them. That's fair. Okay, so let's first start with what do we have in our arsenal to treat pain in horses? So what are the big players in that? I would say probably the biggest class of drugs used to treat pain in horses are NSAIDs. So probably people joke half the horses in the world get a butte vitamin every day. Yeah. <laughs> which a butte is a phenylbutazone and NSAID, which is used to treat lameness or any sort of pain, really. So NSAIDs are kind of the mainstay of chronic pain management in many species, including humans, even acute pain management as well. They can be super helpful and they don't tend to come along with the GI effects and stuff like that. But they are kind of limited in the amount of analgesia that they can provide because it is just an NSAID. Yeah. Well, I wanted to mention the gastrointestinal effects too, because in dogs and cats, for example, probably the most common adverse effect we see from NSAIDs in use in those species is like vomiting, diarrhea, melena, potentially GI perforation. Do we see those effects in horses? So fortunately for us, horses don't vomit. <laughs> so we don't have to worry about that part, but they can certainly get GI ulcers from being on chronic doses of NSAIDs or high doses of NSAIDs. And it can affect things like their albumin. And even they can become anemic if they had really bad ulcers. Right. But generally it can affect their attitude. They can be 
real jerks <laughs> if they have pain <laughs> associated with an ulcer. And so when we have that, we try to get those horses off of NSAID so that, and try to treat their pain in other ways. Right. Okay. So let's move on to other drugs that we commonly use for pain management horses. So what else do we have besides, we'll get to opioids eventually. What else <laughs> do we have besides opioids? Sure. So for acute pain, for example, if you were to go out and treat a laceration or something like that, you could use an alpha-2 agonist, which is going to be Primarily, you're giving it for sedation like xylazine or detomidine or omifidine to be able to immobilize the horse and be able to clean the wound or treat whatever injury that they have received. But unfortunately, the analgesic effect of those drugs are kind of limited also by the sedative effect. So we can't have a patient be on alpha-2s for a long period of time because they're just going to be sedated for that long period of time. So that would be another, probably the second most commonly used drug, I would say. Yeah. Other drugs that we use for horses that there's less evidence really that they work for pain are drugs like gabapentin, Tylenol, tramadol you know there's just some studies out there but they're not super convincing that they're really helpful especially in the form of acute pain yeah i think the only study i can think of about tramadol was one that came out i think this year was about the use of intravenous tramadol for laminitic horses and seemed to have some benefits but i know that the oral formulation like the bioavailability is terrible yes and so, like you said, I don't know how much efficacy there is from the oral formulation. Yes. I think horses do make the M1 metabolite, which yeah. is lucky for that to have the mu opioid effect. So we know that much. But Yeah. And just to, to remind people for the mu, can you just remind people about the M1 metabolite with tramadol? Sure. So tramadol itself is it's classified as an atypical opioid and it is a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. And the parent molecule doesn't really have any opioid effects. It has to be metabolized to the M1 metabolite, which is an, a mu opioid agonist. And so if you have a species, for example, like a dog, they don't make very much of the M1 metabolite. So giving tramadol to a dog is not super helpful in provision of analgesia, but cats and horses and camelids make a lot of the M1 metabolite. So it's possible that you could have a pretty good amount of analgesia from tramadol in those species. Yeah, but studies lacking. Fact. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the, and you have to deal with the oral bioavailability component of it as well if you're giving it orally. And we don't right. have injectable tramadol in the United States, at least currently. Sure don't. Right. Okay. So let's move on then to opioids. Can you just tell us, let's just start with a really basic question. So mm -hmm. what's an opioid? Sure. You have opioid receptors throughout your body. All species do. And basically, they are located on nociceptors throughout your body and also on a lot of other things like immune cells and within your gastrointestinal tract. And they have a lot of functions, but the main function that we are interested in is the fact that they are basically an anti-nociceptive system throughout your body. So for example, if you have a headache and you go for a run and you release endorphin while you're running and your headache goes away, that is an example of the endogenous endorphin opioid system within your body. And so there are several receptors that we deal with, but the main one that we worry about when we're providing analgesia is the mu opioid receptor. There's also a kappa opioid receptor that some of our drugs work at, and there's also a delta opioid receptor. So in a lot of species, opioids are a really powerful group of drugs that reliably provide analgesia, mostly to our small animal species. And so I guess the question is, like, why don't we use them as heavily 
to provide analgesia. Like I, like you said, probably our big guns for providing analgesia to horses are alpha two adrenergic agonists like xylazine and tomidine, and then NSAIDs. Whereas if you look in small animal, probably we're going to be using NSAIDs, but also opioids a lot more often to treat moderate to severe pain. So why aren't we doing that in horses? What's the big pushback against using opioids in horses? Sure. There's probably a lot of reasons to discuss there as well. So I think the primary reason that clinicians would like to avoid opioids kind of goes back to the gastrointestinal effects. People worried about if we give a dose of opioid to this patient that they might colic, and then you're having to deal with that in addition to whatever inciting pain issue that you have. The other second thing to discuss is that there's not a whole lot of literature out there in regards to opioids in horses in general. So probably historically the two opioids that we have been most commonly used are for sure butorphanol, which is a mixed agonist antagonist, which is not as efficacious as the Pyramu agonist in provision of analgesia, and it's very short acting. It's also very expensive. And then morphine has also been used quite frequently in horses as well. But those two kind of classically have been the only drugs that we've used. And then in the last few years, we've had to deal with problems with the opioid crisis, and those drugs have become more difficult to get, at least morphine for sure. And so it's kind of forced equine practitioners to become more resourceful in terms of what opioids that they're using if they were using opioids at all before that. The other thing that we have to worry about with opioids when you give them to horses is that when you give especially pyramu agonists to non-painful horses, they can show signs of excitement, which is usually stall walking. They can even buck and rear and get really aggressive. Those signs generally happen in non-painful horses receiving high doses of pyramu agonist opioids. And I think it's one of those things that it just kind of got reported a whole lot initially. And now kind of there's the impression that if you give any opioid to any horse, they're going to lose their mind. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's really funny because that impression was so prominent for cats too. There's these studies where they were giving like ridiculously high doses of morphine to cats mm -hmm. and they're like, oh look, they are like wigging out in their cage. So we shouldn't use them. And uh, I don't know if it's really a good argument against using an opioid in a horse just to say like, oh, they might walk more. Potentially, if you were trying to rest a horse maybe post-operatively, I could see that being a problem. But you really have to weigh the behavioral issues that you might see, which are also probably like have been overdramatized mm -hmm. versus like the overall welfare of the horse. So I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah. So there's at least two studies showing that horses that are in pain at the time of administration of the opioid don't even show these signs of excitation and that's something that we can't explain why that's the case and we actually use hydromorphone clinically at the University of Georgia really commonly for horses that are experiencing pain and it's extremely rare that we see horses exhibit those signs of stall walking and stuff like that even after we give an intravenous dose of hydromorphone so i would say if you're planning to give an opioid like hydromorphone or morphine to a patient that is currently in pain, it is a non-issue. Yeah, I kind of agree with that too. Okay, so I wanna go through a few of the opioids that we use in horses. So the first one and the most common one that I think people use 
with regular bases is butorphanol. So let's talk a little bit about butorphanol. Why is that the most common opioid that's being utilized in horses? Is it really like providing analgesia? So butorphanol is a mixed agonist antagonist, meaning that it is an antagonist at mu and it is an agonist at kappa. And so it provides a modicum of species dependent analgesia, depending on what species that you're talking about. And it only lasts for like an hour or so. Some people feel like it's super helpful. I, my opinion is that it's not a super great analgesic agent, and especially in comparison to other opioid agents. People are quite attracted to it because, for the reason, it's not a mu agonist. So it doesn't have all those adverse effects that come along with being a mu agonist, like decreased gastrointestinal motility and whatnot. They can still get excited when you give butorphanol to non-painful horses, but it doesn't tend to be as bad as it is when you, when you give a mu agonist to a non-painful horse. Yeah, I think my impression too with the analgesia, if I remember correctly, there's a study where they, they proved that in order to actually have an analgesic effect, you had to give some ridiculously not appropriate massive dose. dose. Yeah, it was like <laughs> 0.2 or 0.5 mg per kg, which is not something that we do clinically right. in horses. Yes. And of course, with those high doses, not only do you get analgesic effects, but then you'll also see these excitatory behaviors. Right. And the other issue, too, with butorphanol is that at least currently it's one of the most expensive opioids that's out there. So when you can get hydromorphone for a fraction of the cost of butorphanol, it's hard to justify giving a lesser opioid for a higher cost. What about in a per volume? It winds up being very similar, right? For our cost here at Georgia, it's about twice as much to get butorphanol than it is hydro. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because the volume, because the concentration that we have of butorphanol is the same as uh -huh. hydro. Mm -hmm. So I think in your study, you were doing 0.04 mix per kg of uh -huh. hydro, right? So we do about 0.06 mix per kg of torb. And also it has a short half-life. So we have to redose it every like hour right. to two hours. Mm -hmm. So we're giving a more expensive drug at a higher volume more often. Gotcha. Yeah. So it costs more in the end. It just costs more in general. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably important to think about. Let's talk a little bit about full mu agonists and being used in horses. And then I want to kind of go back to buprenorphine because that's another option that sure. I've been recently interested in thinking about for horses. But let's start with our full mu agonists. So the one thing I want to start with right off the bat, which we've already kind of harped on already, is the potential for post-operative ileus and its association with like morphine use. Let's dissect that a little bit. I think there was a study that came out, it was a retrospective study where they were looking at post-operative colic, just like what are things that cause post-operative colic? Mm -hmm. And one of the factors they found was that horses that received morphine at some point in their anesthetic period wound up being like four times more likely to develop post-operative signs of colic. That study has probably gone on to be the main study that people point to when they're like, oh, this we can't use opioids in horses because of this. Mm -hmm. And so you have mentioned that you guys have been using hydromorphone here very commonly in horses. Can you comment at all about what you guys are seeing with your hydromorphone use? on a clinical basis? Sure. I mean, we use it pretty commonly in any sort of patient that's having a painful procedure done, orthopedic procedures and whatnot. 
And I can say that like we haven't actually done a clinical study to determine what the actual incidence is, but I don't think that the incidence of post-operative colic has changed at all since we started using hydromorphone so much more frequently. One thing to keep in mind in regard to this topic is that pain itself causes ileus and decreased motility and every single other drug that we use in anesthesia does the same thing. So alpha-2 agonists do it. Even lidocaine does it when you use it on its own, right? And so it's something that we kind of think of opioids every single time, but in reality, all of our drugs do it. And just the physiologic scenario of being in pain does it. Man, and you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> so be like, and pain causes yes, it. Yes, yeah. So if we can manage their pain and have no difference in the incidence of post-operative ileus, then we might as well manage their pain. Yeah, I think another thing too is to think about like, using hydromorphone, I call it like quote unquote responsibly, but really it's about using it while also maybe doing like regular pain assessments on your patient. Because if you can potentially wean your patient off hydromorphone more quickly by doing like frequent rechecking of pain assessments in your patient, then that might make them, you know, you're giving less drugs and potentially maybe they wouldn't develop it. But I don't know if that's what you guys are doing here at all. Totally. Yeah. Our surgeons are pretty liberal with their use of opioids, I would say, in comparison to other institutions. I feel like as soon as they feel like the horse is in pain, they're giving an opioid, but they do try to get them off of it as quickly as possible because of the adverse effects for sure. Right. Okay. So let's circle back to buprenorphine. This is another drug I've been a little interested in in horses recently. Mm -hmm. So I think what would be interesting about using buprenorphine in horses is that it is a little bit of an expensive drug. However, it lasts so much longer than some mm-hmm. of the other drugs. And then also it's only like a partial mu agonist. Yes. And so do you know off, off the top of your head any studies where they were using buprenorphine in horses that had any kind of analgesic effect? Yes. So there is a, a thermal threshold study using buprenorphine, basically showing an antinociceptive effect for several hours after it was administered. And then unfortunately there is one study with buprenorphine where one of the one of the horses died because he got a, a colon, large colon impaction, I think. And, you know, it's, it's unclear in those scenarios where it's a really small study sample, you know, and what other factors were going on. Maybe that horse was predisposed or already sick when they enrolled him. You know, it's hard to say. It's kind of an extreme end to a single dose of buprenorphine. Yeah. Um, so something to consider. I think buprenorphine has great potential for sure for use in horses. The last time I calculated the dose here, when I was thinking about using it for a horse, it was probably about a year and a half ago, and it was $500 (laughs) per dose. You know, I'm also (laughs) interested because now Cymbidol exists, and so it's a high concentration buprenorphine, and so that might be something that is worth it. I haven't done it, and I don't know if you know of anyone who's used, like, Cymbidol on a horse to try to right. save some money because you would need less volume due to the high concentration. Yeah. We actually don't have Cymbidol here just because it is just buprenorphine, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly how much the the cost is, but it would be interesting to kind of figure out how different the cost would be for Cymbidol in comparison to other, the kind of regular buprenorphine. Yeah. And I, this idea came to me because I was actually at, I was teaching some CE down in, in Destin recently. Mm-hmm. And one of the veterinarians told me that the only opioid that they could get a hold of was Cymbidol. So they were just dosing it like regular buprenorphine mm-hmm. for cats and dogs. 
And I was like, well, if they're doing that and they're using it successfully for like a cat, yeah. Um, I wonder if that's an avenue for a horse. I just don't know if anyone's explored that yet. Totally. Yeah. I don't I don't know of a study and I don't know anybody that's doing it, but mm. it could be super interesting to do. Okay, sure. listeners, <laughs> listen up. <laughs> study Simbadol on horses. There you go. <laughs> I mean, I think that they currently, at least hydromorphone for sure, is definitely underused. You know, I think people shouldn't be afraid of using it in horses and having it in their arsenal at least to be able to treat pain in horses. There are some other fulmu agonists out there that kind of come with some other considerations. For example, morphine, which has been used historically very successfully in horses can cause histamine release. So that's something to consider. We try to only give it IM because of that. Another one that's similar is meparidine that causes significant histamine release in horses. And there's a few case reports out there of terrible reactions associated with meparidine. And we just actually completed a study with meparidine here where we gave a pretty high dose to horses, IM and sub-Q, and they actually had no change in their thermal threshold <laughs> after yeah. administration. Did they have um, histamine release at all? So we Did actually, measure we measured histamine, but I haven't gotten the concentrations back yet. So that is to be determined. Uh. They did have terrible reactions after the subcutaneous injection. The, the area where we gave the injection would swell by about 10 times the amount of the volume of the inject- injection. That whole area would sweat. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was just kind of like a, a dirty sort of weird reaction that we were seeing. And so that study will probably be published sometime next year, but it was not super promising results. And they have anything else weird happen to them? Like, did they get hives? Did they get tachycardia? No, it's, it's, it's totally, it's totally weird. Like they just stood there, looked like normal horses for the 24 hours that we watched them and their thermal thresholds didn't seem to change. And then there's also methadone, which does work in horses, but it's also very expensive. Yeah. And it has the added advantage of being an MDA receptor antagonist, which we don't really know exactly what that means in terms of its analgesic effect in horses. And then fentanyl can also be used in horses. It's fairly expensive in terms of a CRI. There's a few uh, studies out there where they've looked at fentanyl patches, the reservoir type patches and stuff and those Studies weren't super promising, but there is a different type of patch that's released now where the fentanyl is kind of built into the adhesive. So it'll be interesting to see if that patch maybe works a little bit better in horses and is a little bit more consistent than the other types of patches. I have a semi-hilarious study about fentanyl patches in horses. <laughs> so at UF, we had this like chronically limited course so that we were really struggling to manage this pain. So our surgeons decided to try to slap some fentanyl patches on uh-huh. this horse. Interestingly enough, the studies that looked at the uptake of fentanyl from kind of the traditional reservoir patches it tends to be that the uptake is better if you slap them on the thorax as opposed to like other regions uh-huh. so they sh- they clip this area of the horse's thorax and like slap like two or three like fentanyl patches yep. over the thorax and then just like walked away came back and the fentanyl patches were just like gone oh no and of <laughs> course the obvious skit like frights was that oh the horse just like paid these patches off and ate them yeah mm-hmm. So some poor student had to like go digging through the stall bedding to see if they could find the patches. (laughs) And did they find them? Sure did. Oh, yeah. The horse literally picked them off and like threw them off or they just fell off because the horse is like sweat. I'm assuming, you know, duly noted to people who want to use fentanyl patches. Yeah. Probably need to do a better job securing those. Yes. (laughs) 
are going to be using them. And also keep keep in mind that horses do sweat. And so that could affect kind of the uptake of these as well. Totally. For sure. I think one thing to consider with any of those sorts of patches is the type of skin you're putting it on. It's going to be different from human skin for sure. And the thickness of the skin varies depending on where on the body you're placing it. And hair growth, like horses grow a lot of hair in three days. Yeah. And could push the patch literally right off the skin and the cleanliness of the area and how well it's going to stick on there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And for those of you who maybe are practicing anesthesia near MRI equipment, note, fennel (laughs) patches and MRIs don't mix. (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, heat sources too. Like if you're using a bear hugger or something over a patient, that can affect the uptake as well of the fennel patches. You've done a few analgesic studies in horses now, specifically surrounding opioids. Something that you mentioned kind of in the beginning of our conversation was about pain assessment in horses. And so what are the pain assessment tools that you are using for your studies? Right now, because my horses actually don't have an existing source of pain when we give the opioid. And so that's why they're ideal for being able to observe the excitement effects and just how bad the fecal output changes are because they're not in pain. They don't have any other sources of bias or whatever there. So in order to simulate basically some sort of stimulus that is uncomfortable for my studies, we use a thermal threshold device. Basically, it's an element that is attached over the cannon bone and it heats at a certain rate to basically slowly heat up around that area where the element is and then when the horse lifts their leg or sniffs it or responds in some way the stimulus immediately goes away and it cools down immediately is there a cap on that yeah it will not go higher than 55 degrees celsius and so it's interesting horses that have received hydromorphone you'll stand there and it'll trip the 55 degree cutoff over and over again. So basically it's it trips at 55 so you don't burn the patient's skin. And then also after every stimulus, we move the thermal element so that we don't keep heating the same area of skin because that could cause some irritation. And then we just kind of inspect that area before and after and over the following days to make sure that they don't have any sort of scarring or tissue damage where we did the heating. And then the other mechanism that I use is a mechanical threshold device, which is basically also over the metacarpus. So usually we'll put the thermal threshold on one side and the mechanical threshold on the other side. And the mechanical threshold has a little pin that slowly puts pressure over the cannon bone at, again, a certain rate of pressure increasing. And so then if they, when they respond in the same way, lifting their leg, sniffing their leg, we, the stimulus stops immediately to make sure that they don't actually experience severe pain. As soon as it's uncomfortable for them and they show us, the stimulus goes away. So how well do we know those types of pain testing models? Like what types of pain are those tools trying to mimic? Sure. So the thermal threshold is meant to be activating C fibers. So it heats at a slower rate. If you heated it up really fast, it would activate both C fibers and A delta fibers, but it heats at a slower rate. So it it is meant to activate more C fibers, which is the, actually the nociceptor that opioids are thought to be more active at. It'll be interesting to see if there's a difference between the thermal threshold and mechanical threshold when you're giving opioids. Then the mechanical Mechanical threshold is thought to activate more the A delta fibers. That's kind of the idea. So that's going to be more of the sharp pain as opposed to the slow burning pain associated with C fibers. Yeah. And those are sensory afferent fibers that actually take the nociceptive signal from the periphery and transmit those signals to the spinal cord. Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
swell. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. <laughs> totally. Okay. With those type of C fibers versus a delta fibers, what types of pain are more associated with C fibers and what types of pain are more associated with a delta fibers and what does that mean for opioid use? Meaning like are opioids kind of showing more promise for visceral pain? Are they showing more promise for musculoskeletal pain? pain? Exactly. So mm-hmm. what what can you kind of conclude from what you're seeing from your thermal threshold testing? Sure. A-delta fibers are supposed to be associated more with kind of somatic, like mechanical pain, and C-fibers are associated more with visceral pain. So the ratio, when you look at the ratio of C-fiber to A-delta fibers in the viscera versus in the periphery, you have a lot more C-fibers in your viscera than you do in other places. So it means that opioids are probably really great for treating visceral pain. So as anti-intuitive as it would be, having a colic come in that's super painful, giving them a pure muagonous opioid would probably be super helpful for their pain. But at least right now, that's something that a lot of clinicians are not super excited about, yeah. <laughs> knowing that pure muagonous opioids are associated with the development of colic and, and affects their motility and whatnot. So Yeah. If you are somebody who works at a practice where you have maybe some clinicians who are not very keen to the idea of using fulmuagonous opioids in horses. What is something that you would say to those clinicians to try to convince them that maybe adding a fulmuagonous opioid like hydromorphone might actually be beneficial? So what are some strategies you can use to basically convince other practitioners that changing to this practice is actually potentially beneficial to horses? So that's a tough question because some people are really, really anti-opioid. Yes. So I, I think, think like, this is a topic that people are have very, very yeah. strong opinions yes. on. Yes. Yeah. I, like in residency, whenever I would give an opioid, there was a, there was one particular surgeon that would say, you know, I'll make you come back in the middle of the night and tube him when he's colicking, you know, and I actually never had to come back and tube a single horse, <laughs> you know, but he was so like convinced that that would happen and it just never did. So I would say, you know, continuing with those people to try to show them the current literature, you know, and experiences at other institutions, you know, we're lucky enough here to have really open-minded surgeons and they're happy to use Fulmu Agonist, which is great for us and, and the horses too, I think. So I think it's just something that those individuals need to kind of jump off the cliff and start using some opioids and see what happens and remain open-minded to it. And I think that they would probably find themselves convinced otherwise pretty soon that that the opioids probably are super helpful. Yeah, what was your process? Did you guys just start doing it or did Um, you have a conversation at first? When I first came to the University of Georgia, the opioids used most commonly in large animal were morphine and meperidine because that's what was available. And then with the opioid crisis, we started having trouble getting morphine, just like everybody else in the world, right? And meperidine is pretty expensive. It's short acting. It causes histamine release. It's like the redheaded stepchild of the opioids, right? So it's not a super great drug. Yeah. And so that's kind of the impetus for the hydromorphone research that we started doing. And so then when we started getting that really promising data, surgeons here were really excited to try it and just see how it went. And And thus far, they've actually really been impressed with how well it works. What made you interested in starting to investigate analgesic agents in horses? Well, some of it a little bit initially was opportunity. At the University of Georgia, we're lucky enough to have a population of research horses that are available to us fairly cheaply to enroll in studies like this. And second was the need, because we ended up 
unable to use morphine, you know, and so we have all these other opioids that we had our hands on still. When you looked online, there was literally no studies with hydro except for one where they gave it epidurally and another one from like the 70s that it's hard to even find online because it's not in print anymore. So that's kind of where it all started. Yeah. <laughs> and I so, think it's like everything. We just like fall into these things. Yes. Yeah. It's like I didn't see myself doing this, but here I am doing this. Yes. Yeah. And I think it kind of now that I've got into it, I'm really interested and am trying other drugs as well, you know, and have multiple follow up projects for the hydromorphone, you know, to try to elucidate exactly all these things that we don't know about opioids and horses so that we can more confidently make recommendations to clinicians about how to use them. Yeah, I think that's really important because even though we do these threshold tests to try to make judgments on animals, like how they would respond clinically. I mean, these are patients that didn't have a painful stimulus initially. Right. You know, how are those horses going to respond? I don't know if you're planning on doing more clinical studies. I'm assuming that's what you're alluding to. Yes. Yeah. So we are hoping to do a clinical study involving orthopedic patients and also colic patients. But Man, clinical research in horses about pain is hard. And it kind of goes back to the fact that it's really hard to tell if a horse is in pain. And so and the the signs are so subtle and to be able to quantify them objectively and be able to detect subtle differences, you need a lot of horses that are experiencing the exact same pain. And that's really, really hard to find. Those studies are kind of like in the embryo level. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Like the only thing that I've seen recently that's been promising about detecting clinical pain in horses was the grimace scale that just came out. Yeah. Just even kind of thinking about humans, like if you went and had an arthroscopy done, for example, that's a procedure that we do really commonly in horses your experience and your pain associated with your arthroscopy could be so much worse than my experience and my pain associated with the same arthroscopy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so being able to get enough cases to be able to eliminate that variation in cases by randomizing things as much as possible, it's really hard. But I wonder if it will be more powerful to say things like, there wasn't an, a change in horses that had post-operative colic or something like that, mm-hmm. because I think that's where the hesitation is. Obviously, sure. we do want to make sure these these drugs have analgesic efficacy in some way. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, we would do that or it's like we wouldn't go through the hassle of administering them and having these potential issues. But even being able to come to that conclusion, I think will be powerful, especially for some people who are still really hesitant about utilizing full muagonous opioids in horses. Right. So yes. you know, I think you can come up with something. Yeah. I mean, like the, the post-operative colic part, like we use hydro enough. I think that probably some retrospective study could be done at some point, you know, and look back and say, like, how often does that actually happen? Attention for people who are interested in helping Dr. Reed with a retrospective study. (laughs) If you want to sit and look at records for days and days and days. Yeah. And because I feel like it's kind of like a mortality study that the incidence is so low that you need to be able to identify like five horses in this pool of a thousand horses, you know, and determine, you know, those horses, did they get opioids and was it, you know, a factor associated with it? We actually had a horse last year that had like a carpal arthrodesis or something and had had hydromorphone for the procedure, but then didn't get a second dose. Then later that night, the horse started colicking and they took it to colic barn. And the intern was kind of like, oh, it's the 
the opioid and then the resident came in and said no he's painful and they gave him hydro and he stopped collagen <laughs> <laughs> so it, and Boom. Then, yeah and then like 12 hours later moved him out of colic barn back to the the healthy barn so it was just kind of an example of you know if you if we don't manage pain appropriately that will actually make them colic on the you know for the other reasons you know yeah. other than the opioids end of one but still extremely fascinating case. yes yes <laughs> Okay. Thank you so much for your time chit-chatting with me. Yeah. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, I encourage you to check out NAVAS and consider becoming a member. As a member of the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society, you get tons of benefits, including access to CE events, focusing on anesthesia and pain management, blog posts, fireside chats with boarded anesthesiologists, as well as specialty technicians, and just so much more. On May 6th and 7th, NAVAS will be hosting their virtual spring symposium. Registration is free and features an outstanding line of speakers on a wide variety of topics in veterinary anesthesia that will be of interest to practitioners, technicians, students, and really anyone interested in anesthesia and pain management. Did I mention it's free? And if you are a member of NAVAS, you can earn up to 12 hours of race-approved CE if you attend the live sessions. Visit www.mynavas.org to register for the NAVAS Spring Symposium and to advance your anesthesia journey today. Also, a huge thank you to our sponsor, DECRA, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Visit their website, www.decra-us.com to learn more about their line of anesthesia products. I want to again thank our guest, Dr. Rachel Reed, for educating us on how to properly use opioids as part of a balanced anesthesia plan for horses. Be sure to listen to part two of this two-part episode next month to hear an update on this exciting topic. And a huge thank you to you, all the gas passers out there who choose to spend their time with me today on the NAVAS podcast. Becoming a skilled anesthetist is a lifelong journey of learning and self-discovery, so I hope you consider listening in the future. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. Bonnie Gatson, and thank you for listening. Thank you.